0: Hi, I'm Leah Potter. I'm Meredith Roten, and we are two news editors at the GW Hatchet. This is the Hatchet's weekly podcast from the second oldest newspaper in DC, covering the happenings around Foggy Bottom and GW's campus.
1: I'm here with Hatchet reporter Vita Felig, and we're talking about a story that you worked on this week about some administrative changes, um, very high up.
2: Can you tell us more about your story? Sure, so uh, this past month, uh, three senior administrators resigned from their position, Anne McCorvey, Jeffrey Ackman, and Matt Manfra. Um, Anne McCorvey is the deputy vice president and treasurer of GW, Jeffrey Ackman, the vice president of he- for health affairs, and the dean of School of Medicine and Health Sciences. Sciences, and Matt Manfra the senior associate vice president for alumni relations and annual giving. So these three uh, senior administrators have decided to leave their position. Two of the
1: administrators are Mm -hmm. actually leaving GW and then one is staying at GW but he's just stepping down. So what did the administration say about the officials and, and why they had left?
2: Right, so University spokeswoman Lindsay Hamilton released a statement to us when we requested a comment. She uh, stated that, you know, um, employees leave for a variety of reasons and that it wasn't anything uh, specific or, you know, something that happened or anything, just that other employment opportunities came up and these administrators felt that it was time for them to leave. Right. And
1: when, when you talk to outside experts, kind of what was the consensus on whether or not this was something that typically happens?
2: so outside experts told me that um, very often when new presidents come into universities it is common that there will be some administrative change it usually can happen maybe not right away but within two three years however it was explained to me that having senior administrators leave is a bit unusual and it can possibly signify that perhaps administrators aren't on uh, the same page as a president's uh, vision for the university or the kind of changes that uh, the president is trying to make.
1: Yeah. And I think something to note here is that when five administrators left last year, those were very senior as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it, we we had heard from experts last year that the, the president um, typically is trying to build like some kind of administrative team at this point. So that kind of goes along with that. Um, did experts say that there are any like downsides to the, the shift at such a high level?
2: Experts did mention that having a lot of administrative turnover, especially within a very short space of time, can kind of signify to maybe potential donors, potential students, that the administration isn't so stable and can kind of create a little bit of uncertainty about the health of the institution. And such and so, having rapid turnover is not seen to be a good thing
1: because it's not like it's not like administrators haven't stepped down at GW before. It's just right. that it's it's not common to see them step down all in the span of one month.
2: Yes, it's more that the number of administrators and kind of the short space of time that it's happened is what is atypical and doesn't usually occur.
1: University President Thomas LeBlanc very clearly came into his position with some priorities he announced when he first came in in 2017 that he had five priorities then he created a website to update the community on those later in that academic year is it necessarily bad that his you know his vision is not connecting with some of the other administrators
2: Um, So, as was explained to me by experts, that actually it's a good thing for a president to join a university with a specific vision, um, and they usually do, and it can be a really good thing and it's a force of change. It's just that sometimes a president can have a specific agenda that maybe is non-negotiable and, you know, as the administration moves forward, other administrators might realize that they're not on the same page and then they can decide to leave. Because this is the nature of uh, university presidential administrations and this is what happens, administrative change isn't necessarily a bad thing and it's expected. Thanks for talking to us about this story. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here.
1: I'm here with Hatcher reporter Johnny Morielli, who worked on a story this week about a new ethics office at the university. Johnny can you tell us more?
3: So uh, the Office of Ethics Compliance and Privacy or OSEP is going to be established uh, start going February 1st and it's supposed to concentrate all uh, the numerous activities that go around with trying to make sure a university stays cool with government regulators you know, uh, any conflict of interest rules, and also data privacy.
1: And can you tell us about um, the administrative, at the administrative level, like who is overseeing this office and kind of what their role will
3: be? Yeah, yeah. So, um, of course, Mark Diaz was the person who announced this, but Dorinda Tucker is going to be uh, the person leading this office as the assistant vice president for ethics, compliance, and risk. He has worked as IBM as an auditor, so that's generally a lot of what I found through looking at uh, peer schools, a lot of these officials come through like inspector generals or auditors. Is
1: is GW like ahead on the trend of some kind of ethics office trend, or are they more falling in line with other universities?
3: Um, it's really hard to say because, especially with this office, um, every university that I looked at seems to have its own different program. In some ways, it is it is in fact following a trend like uh, eight other of our un- peer schools have some form of standalone ethics office. Uh, the Office for Compliance and Ethics is usually uh, their formal title, but they often don't cover as much as this uh, office is planning to. Uh, data privacy is something that's not usually included. It's usually included under uh, their IT departments, in particular, or like technology services. The University of Southern California is one of our only pure schools that actually uh, includes data privacy in their own ethics office as of right now. So. Um, You know, one of the people I talked to actually uh, said there was a semi-joke that if you've seen one compliance program, you've seen just one compliance program. Because
1: they're so different. They're
3: just so different. You know, like, if you see one, it doesn't mean, like, the other one's going to be exactly the same. You have to, you know, kind of go with the flow for each university. You know, what's going in D.C. isn't exactly what's going to happen over in Boston or in California.
1: Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. And what did um, some of the other officials say? The reason is that... So many, so many universities have these ethics
3: offices. One major reason is because in recent years there have been a number of scandals. Uh, like uh, a few summers ago, the uh, University of South Southern California was actually uh, had to fire its former dean of its middle school school uh, because he had been caught using uh, illegal drugs and um, you know uh, being in the company of hired escorts.
1: Um, and I think another example is like Michigan State and the women's gymnastics team
3: there. Yeah, exactly. So given all of these rec- these uh, fairly recent scandals, um, over the past few years, you know, the universities have definitely put a lot more resources into their ethics office, made sure they're and try to get this coordinated ethical approach to make sure stuff like that doesn't happen in their own
1: backyard. These offices are created to be more coordinated, but are there any challenges that having a more coordinated approach offers?
3: Um, well, yeah, I, when I was talking with my sources for a bit, there seemed, um, they reported that there was a, uh, sometimes an institutional backlash against, uh, these, uh, you know, unified ethics offices. A lot of people think of them of, tend to think of them as superfluous, you know, just more university bureaucracy.
1: Thanks for talking to us about your story this week, Johnny.
3: All right. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
0: I'm here with Lizzie Mintz, who this week worked on a story about vendors in the shops at 2,000 Penn and what they're experiencing following renovation plans.
4: Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Of course. Tell me, what's happening with these vendors?
4: MRP Realty, which is a D.C. real estate company signed on to a lease with the university in may to develop the retail complex and they plan on updating the interior and exterior of 2000 pen to mirror eastern market which is a public market space in capitol hill um some of these uh changes include uh, renaming the building western market they plan on redoing some of the interior um, redoing some of the paint, um, and they're hoping to elevate the quality of the space and cut down on rest, rent costs.
0: And which vendors did you speak to in 2000, Ben?
4: Yeah, so we were able to speak with Captain Cookie and the Milkman. We were able to speak with Bindos, which is uh, an Indian food eatery, Uh, we were also able to speak with Bertucci's, the Italian restaurant.
0: What did the owner of Captain Cookie have to say about the renovations?
4: So Kirk Francis, who's the founder and actual co-owner of Captain Cookie, said that since moving into the space almost four years ago, the store actually continues to attract between 1,000 and 2,000 customers a week. When we spoke with all of the vendors, including with uh, Kirk Francis. We were also really interested in learning what it takes to uh, c- keep a business in 2,000 because there has been a lot of turnover. So we were interested in seeing because MRP wants to reduce costs, we were interested in seeing how much it currently takes to maintain the building. Now due to the financial uh, and lease agreement with MRP, Uh, Business owners aren't allowed to disclose that information, but Francis did say that over the past four years, Captain Cookie has never struggled to pay the rent that is in the lease agreement with MRP, but he did point to the fact that he has noticed a lot of turnover in the complex since he's been there and previously when he knew about the space, and he said that was likely... Because of a lack of variety in stores to attract the students to the complex, and also the fact that so many vendors are moving in and out could sort of defer people from shopping there. He did say, though, that he is completely in favor of MRP's plans because he thinks that the updates will likely attract more customers after the renovations and make the space more of a destination market.
0: But then what are his concerns regarding the renovations? Does he see any drawbacks to this?
4: So. He did say that the Cap'n Cookies space will not be touched by MRP's renovations during the construction process. He said that his main concern about the construction in the other parts of the building, though, is that how that will affect sales during the renovations.
0: You you know,
3: I'm not looking forward to the actual construction period. I do think it's going to Um, be a challenge for customers and, therefore, probably result in in lower sales for us. But, uh, you know, it's something that we're willing to put up with because I do think it's going to spur more foot traffic uh, after that.
4: He actually said that he believes that at least one fourth of potential customers will likely see the construction in the general building and assume that Captain Cookie is closed. But when the day comes, the company plans on having signs around the building and around the area to alert customers that the store is still open.
0: Well, thanks for coming on, Lizzie, and telling us more about these renovations. Be sure to keep us updated. Thanks so much for having me. I'm here with our contributing culture editor, Catherine Aboguzala, who's here to talk about two students who are interested in sustainable
5: fashion. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's two sophomores, Lauren Bulger and Chelsea Connolly, who are co-founders of the new club Clean Closets, which will focus on
0: sustainable fashion. How are these students promoting sustainable fashion through their organization?
5: So they first want to screen this documentary called the true cost, which is about sustainable fashion and the labor practices of the fast fashion industry. They also want to do things like clothing swaps. They want to take field trips to thrift shops. Um, They also want to do an educational aspect of the club where the board will research a certain topic and then have a discussion and education session with the members. How
0: are they defining fast fashion and why is that a problem within the fashion industry?
5: So fast fashion is comprised of companies that focus on trends and so if they see a trend they can send in a design and have it made in days. So fast fashion is really about the consumption aspect, that's why their prices are so low. It's an issue because they're using so many resources, so much water to produce these clothes in the first place and the environmental cost of buying new clothes and throwing out your old ones or even just like giving them away, doing that very often has an environmental impact. And when is this club starting to meet? Their first meeting will be on Thursday in the district
0: basement. Thanks for coming on, Catherine, and telling us about this new student group. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us on Getting to the Bottom of It. Getting to the Bottom of It is hosted by news editors Meredith Roten and Leah Potter and features contributing culture editor Catherine Abugazala. This podcast is produced by managing editor Matt Colin and video editor Ariana Dunham. Music is produced by Olk Studio. Special thanks to Vita Felig, Lizzie Mintz, and Johnny Morial for joining us. See you next week.